still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every All right, it is Psalm 18 tonight, Psalm 18. It's, a, it's one of the longer ones that we're going to be looking at. We are coming to a grand transition point in our study tonight. We have up to this point observed David as a fugitive, and we will continue with that tonight, but we will conclude that tonight. As well, his time on the run is going to come to a completion tonight in our study as we look at these events from David's life. And Psalm 18, let me tell you, that is something. We're going to read this together in just a moment, but uh, there, there, is, uh, there is some poetry, there is some vivid imagery, there is some drama in Psalm 18, and we're going to delve into that just a little bit as we consider the circumstances of David's life. In 1 Samuel, the 24th chapter, we have the occasion where David spares Saul in the cave. Didn't delve into the details of that very much, but Suffice to say, David had the opportunity to kill Saul. That event was interpreted by those who were with David at the time as God presenting you the opportunity to bring this ugly chapter to an end and to do what is right for the country and to ascend to the throne. Go and kill Saul. The throne is yours. And you recall that David refused to do that. He did go and he cut off a piece of his robe, but even felt guilty about that. How can I do this against God's anointed? And he refused to do that on that occasion. That was Psalm, I'm sorry, that was 1 Samuel 24. You go over to 1 Samuel 26, and you find a very similar situation where David is uh, in the field. Saul is in pursuit of David with his warriors, and they are in their encampment, and they are asleep, and it is night, and David determines, well, it would be a great time for me just to enter into that camp at this moment. We see this moment of great courage and bravery on the part of David and his companions, and again, his companions saying, here's your chance. Here is your chance to kill Saul. Let's be done with this ugly chapter. But in 1 Samuel, the 26th chapter, that is not what David does. David does take his spear and he takes his jug of water and he just kind of tiptoes through their camp without them waking up. We're told that the Lord had induced sleepiness upon 
Saul and his companions. So the Lord had a hand in this as well. And there's a very similar scene where David has this interaction with Saul afterwards saying, again, I had the opportunity to kill you and I did not take that opportunity. Why are you seeking my life? Why do you continue to pursue me, to kill me like this? What threat am I to you? And Saul, in his um, manner, he flip-flops again to feeling guilty about what he has done and feeling sorry that he has done this. And he admits that he has committed foolish sin. And David says to him, I have your spear and I have your jug of water and the Lord will repay, verse 23 of that chapter, the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so my, may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now you, you would... It, Every appearance at this point is that David is, is riding a high on faith and courage and dependence on God. So the next thing that happens in the record is quite puzzling. I don't understand it. I cannot explain it about what happens. Because of the next chapter, in chapter 27 we find David going back to the Philistines again. And he will spend a considerable time living among the Philistines. And it is a sort of voluntary exile among the Philistines with his own army of 600 warriors. And Achish, the king, welcomes him with startling friendliness there has to be something in it for Achish. And I suspect what it is, is that Achish understands that he is going to be able to exploit this grand split among his enemies, the split in the nation of Israel between Saul and David, these two powerful Israelites. But David brings warriors with him, and that is a resource that Achish can certainly use, and perhaps he feels that will empower him as well. He extends such friendliness to David. David asks him for his own area of the world, and he gives him a city. He gives him the city of Ziglag. And it is from this uh, location that David will will be living for well over a year, and he will be launching military raids against the enemies of Israel. But he's going to be doing this in a very cunning and crafty and clever and deceptive way in terms of what is reported to Achish, because it's going to appear that he is actually 
doing these raids for the benefit of Achish and Philistia. So David is still not finished with his deception um, in, in, in this particular way. Meanwhile, what's going on with Saul? He's falling apart. His reign over Israel is falling apart. His life is falling apart. And we find that the next war that he will be uh, engaging with the Philistines will bring an end to both. It will bring an end to his reign as king over Israel, and it will bring an end to his life, and really it will bring an end to his destiny uh, over Israel. And so these are big moments. These are great transitions that are taking place. Because when Saul is killed and he's out of the picture, of course, that will also bring an end to David's outlaw life, and it will bring an end to his life as a fugitive. And so eventually, and somewhat quickly, I would say, David will ascend to his throne. Initially, only in Judah, but eventually over all of Israel following these events. You go to chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. We find that the Philistines have gathered for war against Israel. Saul's Israel. And this places David in quite a predicament because he is seeking refuge among the Philistines. So what's he to do with all of his warriors? It puts him in in quite a quandary. Is he going to fight on behalf of of his uh, neighbors and his host and fight against his former nation of Israel? Or is he going to take the side of Israel and, and be true to Israel? So it puts him in a real delicate position um, in, in, in terms of how he is navigating his way politically through this situation. What he does is he just joins ranks with Achish and the Philistines as if he is going to war against Israel. I believe, the Bible doesn't say this, but I believe that this is an act as well. I believe that he is feigning allegiance to Achish. This is the same David who has twice refused to kill Saul when he had the opportunity. He's going to go to war against Saul? I don't think so. I don't think that that's what's happening here. Achish is convinced that David is his friend, that David is is going to be loyal to the Philistines. But the other leaders inside Philistia are not so convinced of that. And they object to Achish and say, what... What are these Hebrews doing here? What's this all about? This isn't going to happen. And they protest so much that Achish relents and says, all right, David, just go home. Just go home with your Hebrew warriors. And so David, at that moment, I believe, is providentially spared from this this terrible uh, dilemma that he is in. And so chapter 30 David returns home to Ziklag and he finds that his city has been burned to the ground 
his family, including his wives and his children, have all been kidnapped. They've been taken hostage. And the people, the warriors with David are in such distress over the scene that they've encountered now, they are ready to pick up stones and kill David. They're ready to revolt. Verse 6 says, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and you shall surely rescue all. This is something that we've seen in a maturing David now. He has encountered probably one of the lowest points of his life. He feels the most threatened, the most vulnerable. He's lost his family. He's lost his home. He's lost all of his possessions. The people have turned on him, are ready to kill him. He has no clever devices to figure his way out of this mess. He realizes his trust is in the Lord, and he inquires upon the Lord, and the Lord is ready to answer him and to help him. All right, so just let all of that sink in for just a moment. That's a lot to carry with you. Let's go over to Psalm 18. And I want you to consider what's going on here in Psalm 18. Just, and just read, I'll read the heading in my Bible as it is translated. In Psalm 18, for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who spoke to the Lord, the words of this song in the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, and then it goes the psalm. This psalm, I find it thrilling and dramatic and colorful and poetic as David describes this divine rescue operation where the great resources of heaven are employed to carry out magnificent feats. We find in this psalm God operating in earthquakes, in smoke, in fire, in darkness, in the clouds of heaven, in flying cherubs, in dark waters, in hailstones, in coals of fire, in lightning, and channels of water, all to deliver David. David is rescued by divine intervention. He's snatched from life-threatening torrents that are engulfing him and endangering his life. And it's great stuff. It's amazing. But I have to ask the question, when did all that happen? I gave you a, kind of an overview of what Samuel said happened. And Samuel didn't say anything about earthquakes and dark clouds descending from heaven. And he didn't say anything about God reaching or flying upon a cherub 
to his rescue. We don't read any about, anything about that in 1 Samuel. Not a word about a storm, an earthquake, a, a fire, a flood. And so the question comes, is David in the psalm just using poetic license to give a, an account of what happened in those days? Is, is David exaggerating the events that really occurred as he was rescued from these dangers? Is this a dramatic interpretation of, of what really happened? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Well, those are real questions. Now, I'll give you my thought about it. And you can agree or not agree. That's okay. No, 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 no disaster. We read of David being delivered by lots of means. Sometimes it's the rugged, rugged terrain of the mountains. Sometimes it's his own clever devices. Sometimes it's Saul relenting. Sometimes it's David seeking refuge among the enemies. Some, you know, like this self-imposed exile, etc. But when David has reached his lowest point, when his city and his possessions have been burned to the ground, when his family has been kidnapped, and his men who have been loyal to him have turned on him and are ready to assassinate him at this moment, you might interpret that as the lowest point of this man's life. He is in exile away from his homeland. He has been rejected even by Achish to join his forces. Ziklag's been burned, his family kidnapped. He's lost the trust and the confidence of his soldiers who are contemplating assassination. Yet in almost no time, in a matter of days, weeks, David will be sitting on a throne. We don't know how much time elapsed between the time of the rescue of his family, but at that time they moved to Hebron. David starts dispensing gifts to all of the neighbors of Judah. He becomes king. You talk about a change of fortune that happens like that. The lowest point of his life, and now he is elevated to the status of king. With the death of Saul, David goes from the desperate ruins to the royal throne, just like that. And so what I'm telling you is happening here. It is a monumental shift, not just of David's life personally, but this is a, a shift in the earth's balance. We, we use expressions like biblical proportions, right? We, we, we want to talk about the magnitude of something great or something large happening. Biblical proportions. And it comes from expressions like we read about here in this 18th chapter. There are words of uh, apocalyptic nature being used here. Um, 
Let's just read the first 24 verses together of this psalm and and see if you can capture the flavor of it as I've described it. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies." The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of, the, of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook. And quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He sped on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him. Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, he passed his thick clouds. Hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance, and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the fountains of the world were laid bare. At thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of thy breath out of thy nostrils, he sent me from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place and rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not walked wickedly, uh, have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. Now, I don't think I overstated my case earlier. You see the apocalyptic nature of how David describes the deliverance of David from the hands of his enemies. It's astounding. But still, in the historical record, I I see nothing of thunder, earthquakes, fireworks of any kind. What are we to make of this magnificent description? Well, Let me me try to illustrate my point 
by going back in time just a little bit to the book of Judges. And you can turn back with me to Judges chapter 4 and 5. This, you may remember your history, was the time in which Deborah, the, the only uh, female judge we have, was the great hero of Israel, delivering Israel from the enemy, Sisera. Barak was the great military leader of this time as well. And Judges chapter 4 and 5 describe this history of the victory of Barak and Deborah over Sisera. And, and very simply, in verse 14, the historical record says this, And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. They caught him, by the way. I'm going to stop right there. <clears throat> That's not a whole lot of detail about the victory over Sisera there. Um, basically, the Bible says the Lord routed Sisera. Chapter 5 is a song commemorating that event, a song that was written for that event, and you go to chapter 5 and just read another couple of verses, verses 20 and 21, and we'll get a, another flavor of what we're talking about from Psalms. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. Isn't that amazing? So we go from the Lord routed Sisera, the historical account of that, to the stars of heaven becoming engaged in the battle, in the song, in the poetry of that. It offers a little bit of a different take on the same event. That's the difference between historical records and poetic records, maybe. But in other words, what I'm saying is that the same event maybe have two contexts. The same event has an earthly context as well as a heavenly context. Consider that with me just a moment. Upon the earth, there was a battle planned and executed with soldiers and swords, and they were victorious. But in reality, in the heavenly places, in the unseen realm, that battle waged on with different players involved. And the Lord provided victory in unseen ways by summoning stars and forces of nature to fight in the battle. So when 
we think about that in our own reality, and let's keep in mind our theme of Ephesians for this year. In the letter of Ephesians, Paul says, remember as he's talking about putting on the full armor of God, our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against power in the heavenly places, against spiritual forces of wickedness. These un- the unseen realm where these battles are taking place, and you let your imagination go with that a little bit, and you come to understand that the real important things I don't see with my physical eye, but I must see them with my spiritual eye. And so when David looked back in time with the help of inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe, he saw the mighty forces of God, spiritual forces, accomplishing the purposes that God had, even though he himself got in the way of that sometimes. God's will was not going to be defeated by David or anybody else. And God would utilize whatever resources he saw necessary to accomplish the purpose of bringing David safely through all of this turmoil and chaos in his life to have him come and sit upon the throne and to establish a dynasty through which the Messiah would come and upon whose throne the Messiah sits today. And we don't see all of the ways that God accomplished that. And all of the spiritual warfare that took place in the midst of all of that. But David gives us a little glimpse through inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he sees the mighty forces of God winning the day. And as you think about that, and as you listened to me read that a moment ago, I hope that you were struck with some of the imagery with some of the similarity of imagery that we find from the events of the Exodus. Because it's there. It's there clearly. You you talk about the earthquaking and the mountains trembling. That's exactly what happened in Mount Sinai in in the days that God descended upon that mountain He gathered his people together and they they felt the earth shake and they saw the smoke and they saw the fire. All of these images that we see David talking about and God accomplishing his purpose. God instructed that there would be even images of uh, of cherub on the, the Ark of the Covenant. We find a cherub here with wings and God riding upon it, God descending, His presence coming into play there. The darkness is reminiscent of the ninth plague that God brought upon the Egyptians and the contrasting clouds of darkness and brightness remind me of the pillar of fire and smoke that led the Israelites through the wilderness. And the hailstones remind me of the seventh plague in Egypt. So again, the question comes about, is is David drawing imagery from these mighty acts of God from the past and just kind of applying them to his current situation with poetic license? Or is he describing an apocalyptic event here? 
where there is a remarkable shift in history taking place. The dynasty of Saul is ending and the messianic dynasty is beginning. And that is a remarkable consideration. Yes, LJ. saying that that is not the case, but I'm also, I'm also suggesting beyond that that we recognize the invisible realm, that we recognize there are things taking place that we don't see with our physical eye that must be seen only with the spiritual eye, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that we are spiritual creatures. And, and we find that thought coming to uh, introduction even in the Psalms uh, here. So, yes, thank you. Thank you for that uh, observation, LJ, and that's very true. I can see that I'm not going to have time to get through this entire Psalm with you this evening, but uh, I do want to go ahead and, and just read um, with the time that we have left. There may be other observations, questions, comments. <clears throat> Ahead, then I'll go. Okay. You know, as I look at and hear what we're saying here, the, the key word that, that just jumps out to me is, is David's perspective. I think he uh, he honors God and tries to describe his power and the awe of a being that is in complete control and still describe his feelings and his emotions and how he goes through that. But at the end of the day, Regardless of what David goes through, regardless of what we go through, <clears throat> David still understands that God's in control. He still understands there's a bigger picture. He sees the perspective of what's really going on. He's able to use that to, to help him deal with what he's going through. And that is what I think that we have to do as people. The same thing when we face tragedy. I had a patient today who lost her father. She's getting married on Friday. And she's really distressed about that. And she said to me something that really stuck with me. She said, 
these things aren't happening to me, they're happening for me. And I said, wow, you know, that's an interesting perspective that you put on that. And David sees that many of these things are happening for him to grow, to learn, to mature, not necessarily happening to him before him. So, I can't stop thinking about Corey Burke. Can you? I mean, this young man facing this terrible health crisis with his lovely family, the difficulties and the uncertainties that they're facing. Um, so what do you do when you have a health crisis? Well, you seek, you know, medical opinion and you put together a plan of how we're, you know, maybe some medical interventions, right? And you do the best you can with the resources that are at your disposal. You put together a battle plan. Like Deborah and Barak put together a battle plan. Let's get some swords. Let's get some soldiers. Let's, you know, gather as many as we can, put all of our resources in here, and let's go. And that's what they did. And that's what we do. But the more important, the more important realm of consideration is the basis for why we put confidence in prayer. We're asking God to become energized on our behalf and on the behalves of people we love. We're asking God to go into action in the unseen places, in the invisible realm, in the heavenly places to, to activate the stars, whatever it takes, right? That's what we want. And sometimes we wonder, does God hear us? And does, does he see? David shares with us the clear vision. Yeah, God sees what's happening. And he's interested. And he's interested in the big picture. The big picture. Now, whether he intervenes on our behalf for physical things or not, we can have great confidence that in the spiritual realm, He's fully attuned to what's going on in our lives. Read the rest of the psalm on your own. <clears throat> Thank you for your good attention and comments. The Lord is in His holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before